Today's show is brought to you in partnership with GiveSum. GiveSum is a platform that got on my radar last year. I've been watching with anticipation as they built out their solution. What they have built is brilliant. It's an online platform that allows companies who are already giving to seamlessly engage their employees in the experience by allowing them to choose the causes that matter most to them and choosing where the funds are donated. As my listeners know, I believe that corporate giving needs to be a table stakes when it comes to how we as leaders run our companies. And I also know that sometimes those donations and acts of support don't always connect to the people on our teams. GiveSum solves that problem by creating a bridge where you as a leader can now allow your team to select the causes and charities that matter most to them, and then through the platform itself, receive direct feedback on the impact of those funds. Gone is the need for the once a year town hall or a company-wide email to share the, what causes the org supported last year. GiveSum allows your team to pick the charities and get direct feedback on the impact the dollars had. One of the best parts, GiveSum does not take a percentage of the donation. 100% of the dollars donated go directly to the charity and to the people who need it the most. GiveSum works with your company and for a set fee, they administer the entire process. If you're already giving, which statistically speaking, you most likely are, visit GiveSum.com and find out how you can get your entire company involved in making a difference for the people who need it most. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Mr. Ian Hargraves. How are you doing, Ian? Doing well, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. We met, we chatted, uh, we we decided to go on a second date. Here we are live. <laughs> or, you know, I think you always record your second days. I think it's good for posterity, if nothing else. Uh, you are a data science fellow at ATP Financial, and I'm not going to go any farther. I usually put people in the pitch elevator and tell me about their kind. What's a data science fellow? Let's launch from there. <laughs> Look, it's a fair question. Uh, my answer keeps changing, honestly, every time every time I get asked. But but basically, you can think of like a, a data science fellow as a, a senior advisor on, well, a fellow. You can think of a fellow as a senior advisor in a technical area. And so my technical okay. area is to advise ATB Financial and our teams of data scientists on how to think about artificial intelligence, where it can do good uh, in solving problems for our business and solving problems for our clients, and to really sort of take more of a strategic view on where is this technology going and who should we be partnering with in the province or beyond uh, in order mm. for our organization to really sort of achieve our objectives when it comes to artificial intelligence. Amazing. Well, Ian, that was a pretty successful elder. I, I feel that. you have given. I feel you have defined that, King one, of the that one before. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The, the, the nerds will, will inherit the earth. Um, you've been how long? You've been at ATB? Quite a, a fair, a little stint here, right? It's coming up on eight years. Yeah, I started as the first person with the title data scientist, and they had they had people uh, building really amazing predictive models out of math. They're a, they're a financial institution, right? So, um, yeah. uh, models to determine models about models, yeah. models about models, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. But uh, but uh, you know, I joined um, uh, right as sort of data science as a profession, uh, as a dedicated practice was taking off. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So let's talk. And, and obviously, the word AI, when did AI, that term come in? Was that right? Because obviously data science, AI, you can't go, you can't go anywhere now without it. We'll talk about the chat GPT inflection moment, which I can't help but keep bringing up. But when did AI sneak into the title? Was that always an underpinning eight years ago? Or has that been in the last three, four? When, when has that kind of come front and center for you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, artificial intelligence has been uh, a discipline in computer science for like 70 years. Well, since like more. the 50s, right? Exactly 51, it. 54 or something. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. So really, you know, the term uh, artificial intelligence, uh, we saw it come to prominence in the data science field. I would say there was uh, a major landslide in and around sort of 2015, 2016. Okay, uh, and cool. a lot of this had to do with uh, some of the major advances in machine learning. 
and applications of machine learning. So these would be things like computer vision that allow for facial recognition. These would be things like natural language processing that allow for the creation of these large language networks that can mine massive amounts of text and then predict the next word to such an accuracy that like ChatGPT, they can write things like essays or, you know, uh, basically natural, what, natural language, whatever exactly. you're looking and, for. Yeah. yeah. And, and never to forget that it's math behind the scenes that turns into language in the front of the house, which is really just an interesting mind bending concept. <laughs> if we could just talk, if, you know, even if we want to talk about that. Okay. So a bunch of ones and zeros, uh, turn into words that we, that mistakenly sound better than some humans. I know <laughs> maybe myself included. <laughs> yeah. What was the inflection point in 2015? Was it computing power? Was it just, we got there? Was there, was there some, was it tech? Was it hardware? Was it software? Was it know-how? Was it a kind of trifecta of all three? You know, I think, I think it's definitely, Interfect of all three. Uh, so, like, there were some. Uh, I mean, always the pace of hardware continues to accelerate, and uh, what we could do in terms of memory and compute and uh, and and gaining access to that uh, continued to sort of um, pick up steam. But you know, in 2015 and in 2017, there were some particularly interesting developments out of uh, Google's DeepMind. And DeepMind, okay. you know, who had an office in uh, in Edmonton, uh, still have sort of offices around the globe. Uh, did some really groundbreaking work uh, on um, uh, what are called transformers. And it's uh, uh, sort of an, uh, a novel application of, um, uh, you know, a, a way to train these sort of machine learning models that uh, was shockingly powerful. And, and you know, this, okay. this, this insight really actually sort of changed the game when it came to natural language processing, which led to a lot of the work behind the scenes that led to ChatGPT today. Okay, interesting. I appreciate that. Because all of a sudden, you know, now and with ChatGPT coming out, and it's really put it into everybody's hands and made it from, you know, a little less sci-fi and a little more real. And I, 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 things like DeepMind being at Edmonton and Google being, so many people didn't have a clue about that, myself no, included. No, I know. And no. that was like, that in itself is a pretty powerful checkbox for Alberta and with what Amy's doing up there and just things that weren't on, I would, I'm in a broad statement, most of our radar. You know, I think it's true. You, you don't, when you think of Alberta, probably um, uh, the, you know, home of reinforcement learning and a hub of AI is is not top of mind, right? It's not, it's not <laughs> no. the first thing. And I love that you said that, but you're absolutely 100% right. It just thing. hasn't been, hasn't been our radar. No, it's How, not. However, you know, we've had uh, uh, Dr. Rich Sutton, um, uh, you know, the thought leader in the space of reinforcement learning. And reinforcement learning is one of these amazing techniques where you can actually, uh, you know, train machines to solve and learn within an environment. So, so you don't you don't build the rules for them. They they learn the rules by experimenting with the environment, and and you know uh, uh, you know what we've seen emerge from that field are systems that can solve for poker, that can solve for Go, that can solve for uh, really really complicated games. But these reinforcement learning agents, you know, the the applications for their usage are, are broader than that. You can use them for things like you know dynamically. Uh, ensuring that you're uh, like, if, if you own a massive office tower, you have this problem about like HVAC. This sounds simple, but okay. like, yeah. like yeah. Yeah. how do you effectively balance temperature and control temperature across that building? Reinforcement learning can be applied to problems like that. It can be applied to problems in shipping, logistics, manufacturing, right? You know, you can, you can train an agent to essentially optimize the flow of goods on the floor within a factory. And so all of that really sort of comes out of some of these sort of key insights that Rich Sutton had um, in and around where learning comes from and how we can build machines that can learn. So interesting. Okay, I want to delve into something like you can't have this conversation without talking about well, there's biases in the data, and it's and it's and humans were involved. And you talk about this model that now learns on its own. You don't give it the rules for learning. You give it 
a playground, a sandbox. I'll just use words that maybe are accurate or inaccurate, but it's still based on some data set or some source of where it's drawing. Like, let's just play with, let's just do poker. What data set is it taking from to then to the point that uh, the best poker players in the world, like what, what is it analyzing in that context? Let's just use poker because it feels a little more safe than maybe some of the other, you know, the areas we can tread into. What data is it getting? How do we really ensure, or how do we, how, how do we, how, what's the oversight on data like that on a data set for poker versus where now this natural learning, this learning model kind of goes well beyond and makes and starts to infer its own decision-making based on, well, okay, I've learned this, but now I've seen this happen in instances of play. So therefore now I'm going to continue to adapt. I'll stop talking because I'm going to dig myself into a hole here if I don't. No. Is, is that a fair, is that a fair Look, paradigm? Am I, am I even asking it correctly? It's the best topic. It is the best topic. Okay. And, and all right. Honestly, right on. <laughs> like Tyler, for me, I think one of the most exciting things to really emerge in the space of applied artificial intelligence, I'd say really picking up steam in 2019 and 2020 was a focus on responsible AI. Um, how do we deal with the ethical implications of a technology we're building where that technology can do things that w- normally were, were, were only things that humans could do? And humans are, are you know, we're, we're used to dealing with the eth- ethical implications of a bad decision made by a person. But, but ultimately, who is liable, who is responsible for bad decisions yeah, made yeah, by yeah, machines? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so to answer your question, in the reinforcement learning case, you would have been learning over past poker games. And so and so you're right to call it out. Like the data set there are past games of poker, either played by humans or played by machines against each other. Uh, and, and that is the world. The entire world is just poker. And so sometimes you get this sort of catastrophic type of learning where the machine learns a way to play poker that just actually breaks the rules of poker or, or fundamentally wins in some way that it, you know, isn't aligned with like the, the actual rules involved in poker. But that's about the worst thing that'll happen, right? Like you'll, you'll okay, get sort okay. of a weird behavior that teaches you something new about the game. Um, when it comes to something like ChatGPT, there you've taken uh, a language model and you've trained it basically on the totality of the internet. All the text you could scrape from any source, uh, whether it's Wikipedia, whether it's, uh, you know, digitized novels. Uh, and, and, and so you're right to call out that, like, when it comes to biases... You know, like the internet can be a toxic place. If, if you have a... <laughs> it can, it can, it can. Can you? And you're being, so you're being incredibly kind. So it's been said. Yes, with great uh, power comes great opportunity for debauchery. Well, but anyways, well this yeah. is it. Mm-hmm. Then take a technology that's basically autocomplete on steroids. Of course, it's, it's going to come up with some toxic <laughs> answers. It's going to come up yeah. with some toxic answers. And a lot of the best scientists over the last, you know, I'd say uh, five years working, uh, whether it's at Google or whether it's the amazing team that's pulled been pulled together by OpenAI. They've been trying to figure out ways to make it less toxic, to make it safer. Um, and we have dedicated teams of ethicists and technologists working together to try to sort of understand, well, how do we quantify the bias in the data? How do we understand its impact on what the machine is going to say? How do we set up safe bounds? Um, and then if, if you're in an organization, what do you need to do in order to re- align with incoming incoming regulations that, you know, uh, are are in place to ensure that hey if you're in the business of building ai you've got the right sets of checks and balances in place so that the clients who use those tools can do it safely 
So do you have a cohort or do you have a counterpart, maybe is the way to say it, at, at, at ATB or at any of the, the organizations you consult or work, or work with that focuses on the human-centric side, the humanities, someone who's coming from a, a psychology background and philosophy, anthropology, like all the, all the humanities that fit into that? Because the lonely data science scientist <laughs> painting a picture here, it's becoming a novel, you're on a dark road by yourself, uh, going, I just wanted to mine the data to come up with some outputs, but oh my goodness, there's humans involved and that's messy as hell. Look, I, look yeah, so, 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 so two, two answers there, two answers there. Um, uh, one, uh, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to work with the incredible Yukon Zhang, who uh, is our thought leader when it comes to responsible AI. And so okay, we, nice. we have a, a dedicated team member whose job it is to lean in on um, questions like how do we build systems that are auditable, that are, are transparent, that can be governed soundly and safely, and to build that government framework within the organization, and then make sure that we're auditing every AI we build, whether it's you know uh, trying to recommend the right mix of products and services for a client, or whether it's doing things with natural language processing to help us with sort of fulfillment times. There's a lot of paperwork in banking, and we can use a yeah. lot of this technology to automate a, the flow of a lot of that paperwork. Uh, and so, so you know, we have we have dedicated professionals who you know report into our, our chief ethics officer. Like we have, uh, uh, you know, quite a focus at ATB and, and that's becoming increasingly common at other organizations as well. The second answer, though, is, you know, I think um, one of the cool things about working on data science teams is everyone comes from a different background. So we have okay. dedicated computer scientists. Some of the favorite data scientists I've ever worked with have backgrounds in economics, uh, in, um, you know, in physics. My background is in cognitive neuroscience, so I've got the psychology background, and we have other folks with cognitive psychology backgrounds as well who are curious about these questions. And so when we come together as a team and we're brainstorming and we're sort of working on these problems, a lot of these questions about trust and agency and accountability and decision rights naturally tend to emerge. I appreciate that. And at the speed, it feels like, and again, this always happens when you get let in, right? You're like, oh my God, this is moving so quickly. You're like, hey, we've been talking about this since the 50s, to your point, but there was an inflection point in 15, 16, 17. And you know, I think everyone I talked to is like, well, we're going to look back and go November 2022, start of December 22, when GPT became like, this keeps coming back to an episode of Terminator. But when, when <laughs> GPT became self-aware, speed versus you know all of these concerns that you're talking about. But as this becomes more accessible, large organizations like a bank, like a financial institution, I should just say, with more accountability and governance and there's a model there but this is starting to become excess and this isn't a doom and gloom statement i'm very i'm very pro all of this but i still think it's really important to go yeah it's great and as it becomes accessible and we look at the internet and some of the you know concerns in terms of how maybe the algorithm and we play with it and it plays with us as it becomes more accessible does that risk of the ethical side become even more prevalent and that need for an overarching governance becomes a non-negotiable absolutely absolutely and and one of the one of the challenges there is the gap between how quickly policy moves um you know by design and how quickly technology moves and and you know i think we as the consumer we're running we're, we're living in a bit of a live experiment right now where you know we're <laughs> experiencing implications that maybe if we're lucky in two, three, five years time will be translated into policy to sort of help set us up for a better, safer future. Um, you know, happily, there is some really great work 
in the policy space emerging at a federal level. Um, it's a little slow in coming if you look at what Europe has done, but they've always sort of led in spaces in and around data privacy and data protection. Um, right. uh, and we are starting to see some standards emerge in the space of responsible and sort of ethical AI. Um, there's been numerous uh, numerous sort of uh, uh, there, there's been a lot of progress made your stateside as well in that space. Uh, I'd say, okay. you know, one thing though, uh, you're right to say that we're going to look back on 2022 as a moment where something changed, because I think what changed was OpenAI broke a very sort of stymied business model. And, and OpenAI was sort of like, they're, they intentionally were, were, were worried about this technology and the advancement of this technology in the public's eyes always being in the hand of a few small super companies, right? You would have your Google your Amazon, your your Meta, Facebook, and they would release a chatbot every now and again. And but behind the scenes, they were publishing world leading research in this space. Google DeepMind has been doing things like like the original paper that kicked us all off. That was a Google team, and and DeepMind has been doing incredible work in the space of large language models, trying to build um, large language models that are safer, that fact check themselves after they say a statement to decide whether or not that statement is true. Um, they've done phenomenal work to gauge sort of. Um, you know, the truthfulness and accuracy of what is said, because they're, they're, they as a very big organization are very sort of worried about some of the risks and, and the, the negative backlash that, that can ensue when you put out a technology like this. What, what OpenAI can do is just throw it out into the world and see what happens. And, and so, you know, the, the funny thing there, though, is like having been in, in the artificial intelligence space for a while, in the data science space for a while, like really the, the hard part about data science are the bookends. It's, it's finding the right problem, right? It's finding a, you know, like okay. where, where can AI actually do some good? And then it's the downstream bit of change. It's humans, humans experimenting with a system that you build for them. And saying like, well, I like this, I don't like this, I trust this, I don't like this. Or as we've seen with uh, ChatGPT, going, I could use this to write essays, I could use this to write code, and and then everything downstream of that, you know, those, um, uh, you know, we have we have universities going like, what do we do if our students use ChatGPT yeah, yeah, yeah. to write their essays, right? We we have employers of of software developers going like, what do we do if our developers kick start by using code? Right. And, and, and then we have all of the legal implications of that. Right. Like if we trained, if, if ChatGPT writes a piece of code and it, all of the all of the learnings from that code were scraped from open source for, source forums, have we violated the terms of use for those forums in in the production of that code? You know, these are questions that remain to be answered. But this is the hard part of change when it comes to A.I., you know, can the data scientists build something? Yes or no? Like that's like the answer is typically yes. Um, uh, so, so in a way, I think, I think this is a, a real watershed moment because because of the societal change that we're forced to deal with. It's out there now, and we're all thinking about it. In that is an incredible opportunity. But as you point out, in that are some real risks that we'll need to wrestle with. You really touched on well. You touched on a lot of things there. One I pulled out was just the change, man. Like the human fa- the human element yes. in all this. 
you know, just because you build something, should you? And just because you build the what you believe to be the best solution, will people actually use it? Talk to me a little bit about just that side of it. Like we're bringing, we're, we're, we're up in the 30,000 foot, you know, kind of global perspective here. Bring it down to working inside an organization. And, and you and I chatted a little bit. I think I'm pulling this from our first chat of like, yeah, I've built some interesting solutions that nobody actually wanted to use, even though they, <laughs> they actually, saw, quote unquote, solved the problem. How much is that the human factor? And are we getting better at considering that sooner? Like, you know, don't fall in love with the problem, fall in love with your customer's version of the problem. <laughs> you know, some of those catchy lines that are easy to flip off the tongue. But how much is that a factor even, you know, working inside the organization, you've been there for eight years. I imagine there's been projects that have been in, in, in the team's mind, amazing, but then just the, the customer or the team, whoever's the stakeholder, just didn't want to use it <laughs> or didn't want to use it in the way that you you guys intended uh, along your journey. Look, that is exactly it. Um, and uh, <laughs> and I think I think that's how you end up a data science fellow. Uh, like my, for me, like the the white whale moment, the thing I never got over was as a data scientist where I'd, I'd, built, um, I'd built a system to solve a business problem. Uh, for us, it was it was in our um, in our call center. And, uh, you know, the system was clunky. Like it worked, the model worked, the the predictive piece that I built worked. It was it was showing real results, but you know the full end to end of it hadn't been thought through. It it hadn't really been thoughtfully considered as a real product, and so that change management was too high for it to ever really be adopted. Um, and it, it got me to think a lot about trust, and really trust is like trust is everything in banking. Trust is everything in the space of AI as well. You know, you can have the best system in the world making the most accurate predictions that will generally say help to grow someone's wealth, right? Or or a system that is can recommend what is absolutely the right conversation for a team member to have with a client at that moment in time. But if if the team member doesn't feel it in their heart, if it doesn't seem good, if it doesn't read as true, it, they won't they won't have that conversation. The, the trust just isn't there. And, and what that means is it didn't matter how good your work was. It didn't matter how good your, your you know, the actual sort of thought thinking that went into um, the, the application of data and cool math. Uh, none of that will matter. And, and so like that for me became an, a, a real obsession, uh, you know, in an organization, how do we make sure that we're aligning against the right problems? And and really ensuring that okay, if we're going to go solve something with artificial intelligence, this is this is one a meaningful problem for the organization that is like tied to our values is is going to do good work for us is, is tied to a, a key metric that we all agree we care about. Uh, uh, two, um, it's a good problem for AI. We have the data. There is a prediction that can be made. There's something downstream that can use that prediction and do something. Right, because like making predictions for prediction's sake, it gets you nothing. Uh, you, you know, I can, I can. It's like data for the sake of data. That's exactly right? well, it. For what? Exactly what, are we, what are we trying to answer from this large pool of collected information? That's exactly mm-hmm. it. But if if I make that prediction and someone has a better conversation and that leads results in a in a better client outcome, or or we're able to make a prediction about the information that's in a document, and that means that someone doesn't have to read it, and we can save them ten minutes and then multiply that by hundreds of thousands of times a day. Ten minutes, four times a day, five it's times a day. Um, Suddenly, yeah, suddenly yeah. huge, uh, and so so I think I think aligning against the right problem is has has been uh, is is mm-hmm. one area where organizations tend to struggle early on, uh, and then two, uh, you know, is, is is that back half? Like I mentioned, I mentioned the bookends of AI uh, downstream, the change management. Have you really thought it through like a product? To you know, and and I think the yeah. the language of products and borrowing tools and techniques from product management has been about one of the best things we've ever done as an organization because products are defined by what uh, they do. That makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, so really sort of zeroing in on like cool prediction, but what's it for? Will they trust it? 
and then like get to a minimal viable product and and build that trust over time with them. Ensure that adoption. Uh, and get those stakeholders involved at the, in those phases. Early right? on. So, hey, it's done and it's baked. We never asked you a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, geez, I would have. Yeah. You know, and I think we can't help it. So why would have done it differently? And why does it do that? And so, you know, I've been, I've been a marketer for a lot of years. If you're in that room and you're pre- and you're pitching something that some of those people in the room can't see their fingerprints on, and it's a Brett Nanu, oh. the risk of that failing that even though it could it could be quote unquote a great idea, but if they don't feel connected to it at the client side, done, finished. You're pu- you're putting a lot of risk on your plate. I, you know, it worked good in Mad Men, but it doesn't work <laughs> like that. I, I don't enjoy that in real life. Um, just to pick on something. Listen to you talk. I, I pulled the tone and I pulled the I pulled the narrative of this is augmenting your team. This is augmenting the call center or the agent or the, whatever role in the bank. What I won't get into the the, 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 the multi tiers, you guys. But client facing individuals, there's still a human interaction there. There's fear, as there is everywhere. We all we all love to be scared of stuff. Well, some might say it motivates. We're, we're we're quicker to run away from something than we are to run towards something else. But the fear of like, do, is this a force multiplier for humans or does this eventually I get to have a conversation with directly with the AI about my account or about my investment or about its RS, RSP season right now? What's our, what cycle are we in there? And I know this is a touchy topic because it's very quickly to go, oh man, this is when the robots take our jobs, right? Or does the robot, <laughs> for the for the general sense of the term, allow me to focus on the high value, high impact conversations and it reads that 10 minute document for me and summarizes it so that I can go and have a conversation. Where do you see that cycle? Where are we at? And where are we maybe heading? I'll, I'll, I'll force you to pull out your crystal ball. Oh, yeah, no, no worries there. Uh, look, it's, all right, this is this is going to be a deeply unsatisfying answer for you. I'm sorry. Tyler. Okay. All right. It's All right. Both. That's cool. It's both, man. It's it's both. <laughs> uh, and 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 so like let me let me unpack that for a bit. Like the one of the one of the thinkers in this space who um, I've been really inspired by is AJ Agarwal out of the University of Toronto. Uh, he he released a book. Um, it was in 2018 called Prediction Machines. And okay. uh, yeah, I'm aware. Yeah. I'm aware of it. Yeah. So 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 in that book, he sort of goes through how like, hey, look, this is not the first time that a new technology has has been rolled out. Right and and has fundamentally changed work and how uh, the you know the nature of our jobs the 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 fabric of the economy and so he goes back to um, you know the sort of informational the information technology boom right when when we got to a point as a, as a as a civilization where um, instead of doing arithmetic by hand we could build machines that could do large amounts of arithmetic and computers used to be people who sat in a job and and computed they did arithmetic by hand in order to get to some kind of a financial outcome and ledgers were all of them balanced by hand and and now we live in a world of spreadsheets right so so some jobs go away the job of the computer is now uh, is now no longer needed yeah we don't need people to do that that work anymore because machines can do it faster better more cheaply than than humans ever could. Um, at the same time, you've seen an entire software industry that couldn't have existed suddenly begin to exist, and and out of that, numerous knock on effects and opportunities for 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 many other industries. Artificial intelligence is is like that. is is going to be like that. There are going to be moments where uh, where some jobs where it was highly routinized, highly structured maybe manual data entry from from documents into a machine those those go away uh and and those those would be at really high risk for for full replacement but there's an opportunity there because usually it's the the thing that you're automating is the piece of the job that's the biggest bummer 
right? It is <laughs> that you don't love. That yeah, you don't yeah, love, totally. that you don't love. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and what that what that will be is a force multiplier. What what that means is we can rethink the flow of information through through your your industry, through your office, through your job, uh, and and you can begin to say, well, well, which of this could an AI do? Which which can an AI get me eighty percent of the way, and and then maybe I'm just providing edits because because I have the context on what's going on in the business, or I understand the tone that my client likes to be to 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 hear. Um, well, back to subject matter experts and you know the, the human side of I've got experience, I've got time, I, I I know it. I may be not an AI expert, but if that can force multiply the things that I I'm really good at and the nuance, that would seem like a more rewarding day of work. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> or, or whatever what day of work does even what does it even look like anymore? <laughs> well, accomplishing and, accomplishing things that are required at your employer that benefit your customers. I don't know what you want to call it anymore. And, and so so look, I, I think I think the organizations that are going to be successful are those that really lean into that opportunity because like mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of our jobs are codified into rules and roles and processes and you report into so-and-so but like all of that is just the flow of work stuff in order to get a job done for the organization for the client in order to achieve a business outcome um i think the the really successful organizations will lean into things like decision science which is sort of a uh, a, a, a practice, a, a method for uh, for working through the decisions that exist within your organization, which ones have been codified as rules, and and unpack them and ask like, well, where could an where could an artificial intelligence be owning that decision, or or how could an artificial sure. intelligence feed into that decision, and how would that change the number of decisions we can get through in a day? how fast we can do that processes, where the checks and balances are. And and what we can do is we can begin to renegotiate sort of the role of the human. But like you say, you know, the the empathy, the critical thinking, the the awareness of context, the political savvy, the all of the above that a human brings just becomes more valuable because that human yeah. ends up owning more decisions and and hopefully hopefully work is more rewarding because you know the organizations who do who, who go through that effort will will have roles that are really designed for humans to make to make the most of what we bring to the table. You know, are we on the precipice of the promise of technology making our lives easier and increasing our leisure time and making it more rewarding <laughs> that we've been promised, I think, for like since the Jetsons? <laughs> this came up on a podcast I was doing yesterday. I'm like, wait a second. This sounds a lot like technology is going to make your life so much easier. You're going to work so much less. Leisure time will go through the roof. Uh, yet to be materialized. But anyways, I, I digress. That's not a real question. You don't need to answer that. <laughs> look, I mean, like, I, I, it's fair. It's fair. No, look, you, you, you brought it up. It's fair. I'm, I'm <laughs> suspicious too i'm suspicious too like what what um there's 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 what the technology can can give for you but then once we realize what you, that you can do so much more with your time we yeah, probably exactly. just going to give you more so uh, i completely yeah, agree that's that's more the free market economy that's not i don't know that that's necessarily yeah a that's a bigger pressure. paradigm we're, we're we're getting outside our we're getting we're getting outside our guardrails for this conversation but it's it it, it it shows, though, how integrated and dynamic it is. We're not having a technology conversation. We're not having a humanity conversation. We're having a human experience in the world. And, in, and we're just picking the world of work. There's so many other elements that this touches on. We're just you know, trying to stay in the guardrails a little bit of inside a corporate or small to medium-sized businesses. And you know, as a small business owner, the force multipliers that this bring out and the do more with less that we've all been forced into consistently, there's just cycles of do more with less. 
I choose to see it as a, as as a new set of superpowers. I just need to figure out how to get get my hands wrapped around them, and then uh, and then allow my team. I'm actually doing a presentation to my team tomorrow. I did a poll, and half my company was like, "Oh, we don't really know what it is, and we're kind of scared to get involved with it." So I'm like, "All right, let's just do a one hour. I'm going to have a conversation with ChatGPT with my team, and we're going to talk about it, and you know, try to remove fear, but just try to start with like, okay, this is a thing. Maybe it's not scary." I need to go and play around with it. Just start, just even starting there. And it sounds so basic, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, honestly, Tyler, like that's a, that's a, like a, it's, it's the right approach. It's a, it's a thoughtful approach you're taking. You need to begin with education. And like what we found, um, L- lower fear, increased curiosity. That's exactly it. No, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. it. And get, but get everyone thinking about the opportunity as well as the risks associated with the technology in, in, in this, give them the same view, give them a chance to air those fears mm. so that they don't become resistant downstream so that they don't become problematic behaviors that you just have to manage through later. And instead, you know, a, a common view of the opportunity and the risks, uh, you know, like that's, that's where, that's where, um, what I've seen be successful at organizations is beginning with those conversations with the board, with your CEO, with your senior leadership teams, really, at, and, and center them on, on, on what do they need to know? What are their fears? Have that conversation about what those fears are at each level and, and make that, Make that more of an inclusive and open space, and and then suddenly I think um, the suddenly people become more excited about the opportunity once once they're they've had a chance to voice those fears, uh, as well as um, as well as you know have a have a group conversation about what the opportunity really is. And and being okay that we don't maybe have the answers. Yeah. You know, there is that resistance in a corporate environment to like, well, if you're going to present it, you got it all figured out. I was like, well, no, no, that well, one, I just don't think that's the world we live in because it's moving. So, there's just so much so 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 fast. And I like what you said about you know, and in context, you're at HP, large organization. You got to, what if it's small to medium sized business? To me, it sounds like I'm kind of asking, but answering at the same time. It feels like the same approach. Get in there, like you know, we're going to have 20 people on this call, which is our core team, and we're just going to have a dialogue about it. The agenda is to have a dialogue about it. So that really doesn't, big or small, that feels like a universal truth in terms of how to get this thing, you know, out of the closet and go, wow, well, let's actually just take a look at it. And oh, you know, the monster is not that scary once you pull it out from under the bed. (laughs) Interesting. So what do you see? Let's talk about our province a little bit, because of course, I'm very pro Alberta and I love everything about our province. And I also want to know where we sit, where we hold ourselves back. So when it comes to AI and some of the conversations you've been involved in, where do we sit? What's the journey look like on a, on a, on a provincial level? And you can kind of unpack that, whatever, whatever works for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think, um, I think on a provincial level, uh, Alberta, Alberta really does in the university of Alberta in organizations like the Alberta machine intelligence Institute, uh, Amy, um, in groups like, uh, um, Alta ML, we we do have some real uh, real local talent like within our own backyard and and particularly the the University of Alberta the bright minds that it attracts the bright minds that it educates and what it contributes to the fabric of the community when it comes to applications of machine learning artificial intelligence uh that is a that is an absolute gem and uh the question of are we are we backing that fully enough? <laughs> of course, someone in my position would would always see the gaps. Someone in my position yeah. would always say no. Uh, we're 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 maybe not making the most of you know uh, the 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 talent, the thought, the energy that we have in this province in the space of artificial intelligence. You know, at, at the same time, we we 
there has been lots of good. There have been lots of bright moments, uh, whether that's, you know, uh, recent announcements of additional federal funding for Amy along with, um, you know, like, but like Edmonton shows up like right there with the other AI hotspots within, within Canada. And, and, you know, like we, we really do have a lot to celebrate within our own backyard. It's just, um, it really, I think always some of the challenges include brain drain. Right. Yep. I mean, where where are the other hotspots? I know Montreal plays, and what, where where else? What, what would be the other top three if I looked across the country? Is it the big centers? Is it is it that easy just to look at it that way? It's the big centers. It's that easy. Yeah. Okay. So so Montreal okay. Montreal absolutely stands out uh, as a real hotspot, and uh, Toronto, uh, of course, lots and lots of opportunities, lots and lots yeah. of great activity and development in Toronto as well, uh, and a lot of it driven by a really exciting uh, startup scene. Is it true? And I've heard this. I originally grew up in. I'm from Quebec. Many many years ago, I lived in Montreal. But it's been 20 years, so I have a fond spot. But I'm very disconnected from it now. Um, the story I always heard about Montreal it was was tied so directly to a prof at the university who really drove this forward. That it really came out of the educational environment, the post secondary, that really got this thing driving and going forward. And where they can look back and go, yeah, this one individual really started creating that community. I've always really appreciated the role that post secondary played when it comes to especially emerging and new technologies. And we can all be excited about it, but if we don't have the talent, we, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, well, look, that, no, I think I think that is exactly it. Yeah, Joshua Bengio, and and I mean like his. Students uh, like Jan LeCun is the head of uh, artificial intelligence at, at Meta, Facebook. Um, you know, we've. Uh, uh, but but I think I think maybe maybe the academic institutions tend to be a bit of an incubator. Like AI, artificial intelligence has gone through several winters. It's gone through periods where <laughs> yes. we're really excited about the potential that this technology to do great good and solve important problems, and then and then we hit a wall and and excitement dies down and investor interest dies down, and then you know we go through these periods where we sort of struggle to struggle to make material advances. So um, you know I think. I think we've just in over the last say twenty years or so been emerging from uh, been emerging from one of those winters, and so like for the universities to lead it, um, why not? Like they've got they've got the talent. They we and and we really do have some some cutting edge work. Uh, a lot of it, you know, even coming out of sort of uh, like work done by cognitive neuroscientists, uh, uh, Jeff Hinton, um, a great cop computational cognitive psychologist who did uh, a lot of the sort of fundamental work on these um, uh, learning networks for Google. Uh, and I believe, yeah, heads up a lot of their research. Uh, I, I've, seen, I've heard the winter, the winter analogy a lot. Are we, are we in March, April or May in terms of the spring, like if we're coming out of the winter, is it still early? And I'm not just playing. How long can you, how far can you pull the metaphor out? <laughs> Um, are we March? Because the Calgary could still snow, um, as it probably will. Um, or are we April? Are we getting into May? Are the flowers starting? Like, if you kind of compare that to you know the, the 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 winter of despair and all those metaphors, where are we in that cycle? Is it still super early for where you th- see things are? You know, and also tying to your excitement level of where what spring and summer actually of AI actually look like potentially. Yeah, I think I think we're still super early actually. Um, okay. You know, uh, we w- within this technology is is the capacity to. Um, to automate moments of intelligence, right? In order to get, mm. to get jobs done. So, so here, here's the, the sort of funny thing, like the, the foundational research, um, you need to think of AI as a, as a horizontal, 
you know, okay. we, um, within the universities, within the sort of big, um, big companies like Google, um, uh, your open AI, y- you have dedicated research teams for advancing the frontiers of the, the application of artificial intelligence itself. But how that translates into our lives, because it's a horizontal, you're going to start to see it make inroads in different areas. You're going to start to see okay. um, it enabled in your, your search bar. You're going to start to see your operating system have more and more smart features. Someone just sent me the Chrome extension for ChatGPT yesterday and saying, "Hey, do you want to put the maybe you want to put this on your Chrome ex- as a Chrome extension?" So that, I just that showed up in my Slack channel yesterday. Well, look, I mean, GPT four is just <laughs> yeah. so yesterday uh, just released yet yesterday. Um, oh, was it? I didn't. I didn't even uh, know that. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, Google had a big announcement about Google Workspace and some of the um, upcoming integrated AI features uh, that, like, hey, write me an email to so and so using the following type of tone right so like we're yeah. we're, we're gonna start to sort of see see this technology materialize oh, you mean it's life. gonna be easier you mean it's gonna be easier for people to send me more emails i don't know <laughs> you or, i don't know how i feel about that yet <laughs> we did it i'm sure don't worry they, they also have a bot that can summarize the emails for you so like that, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. and i've heard google's running at a uh, as fast as they can now because of what OpenAI did and it's a little bit of an arms race right it absolutely is an arms race um yeah, but i think yeah, i think yeah. you know what opened the door is the change management piece that we were we were chatting about mm, you know so, suddenly people are more comfortable with the idea of of these of an AI yeah. behaving like that in in their workflow, and so so you know Google um, uh, was always positioned to quickly move on that one. Um, you know they are yeah. the originators of the technology; they do own a lot of the best infrastructure. I love the concept. I had a creative director who used to work with me. And he always said, "He goes, you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have permissibility from your audience to believe you that you are this thing you're claiming or this product does what it does." It doesn't matter. The campaign will fail. I love that. And it just made me think about the permissibility of all of a sudden now. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm aware of this. So I'm so much more open to some of these new technologies that maybe were already available, but we just weren't ready to bite that off yet. And back again, back to the change management and the human piece, like the permissibility around AI changed, you know, that that's where we can really give credit to what OpenAI did. For me, anyways, just as an, as an everyday guy going, I'm not a tech guy, but this is really cool. This is really <laughs> powerful. And maybe maybe if I talk to enough people, I'm going to slowly become it. Because just the ability to full, force multiply in your life and to do things. And ChatGPT's become one of my thinking partners. I'm like, ah, here's an idea. Is it, did I even word this correctly? And it's never the final answer, but you know that morning at three in the afternoon on a Saturday when my team really doesn't want to talk to me, I've got somebody I can I can uh, brainstorm with. <laughs> it's kind of how it showed up in my life, which I asked me three months ago that that's how I was going to use an AI bot. I would have had no idea, not a clue. Well, and and I think I think so. You know, going back to that notion of AI as a horizontal, the the more we the more we find ourselves in a world of organizations like OpenAI doing new things with AI putting it out there sort of challenging our assumptions about like what this technology can and can't do, the more opportunities we're going to discover, you know, like, uh, like internally, we've been calling it kind of an iPhone moment. Um, like when the iPhone first came out, it was, it pointed in a direction, but the app store wasn't there. And like, you know, there, there wasn't enough bandwidth to support really a lot of what, what, what we get from these devices now. And, and back then we, we maybe had a notion about what they could become, but we couldn't quite put our fingers on it. Like it does take time for, for individuals, for companies to find a new opportunity, to innovate, to experiment, to, to sort of push the boundaries. Uh, I think that's what we're going to start to see when it comes to technologies like generative AI and, and AI in general. And that's where those, that sort of horizontal, um, layout where you start to see those verticals emerge and where you start to see leaders in, in the applications of artificial intelligence. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Are you seeing even inside your own organization kind of that the art of the possible concept where now, like, because once I learn that it's capable to do this, then all of a sudden my brain goes, oh shit. So does that mean that it can also do that? Is that, is that flywheel starting to spin a little bit faster? Yes, yeah, from your perspective? absolutely. And, okay. and I'd say yeah. um, uh, like happily, like at, at my organization, um, we're, we're lucky that we have a leadership where that flywheel has kind of always been spinning and not just for okay. advances in artificial intelligence, but it, yeah, yeah. in other technologies as well, where, um, you know, I think, and I think as a leader, you, you, much like you've done, you, you need to have that sort of willingness, that openness, that capacity to, to flex your thinking and say, okay, well, like throw out everything, all the assumptions I made about how my business works and runs. Like, could I use a technology <laughs> yeah. like this? How would that, what would that look like? Get, get kind of curious about it and then have a conversation with your team about, well, what's possible? What's feasible? Do we even want this? Uh, you know, just, just that, that openness and flexibility of thought becomes, I think, a real essential ingredient in a world where technology is advancing as quickly as it can. You know, we, we can't afford leaders with really rigid, strict, dogmatic thinking anymore. I like what you said earlier in the show about, you know, well, can we build it? Yeah, we probably can. But that's not the only question we should be answering right there. <laughs> and I had a futurist, I had Sabrina Sullivan on, and she talked a lot about the orthodoxies and what it is to truly think like a futurist and and our own biases from cultural to how our, this is just how we've always done it. To me, that's a reason to blow almost anything up. When someone kind of digs in their heels and says, this is the way we've done it for 20 years, I'm like, okay, that's something I want to go talk about. And, you know, in marketing, a lot of times there's, sacred, there's a lot of sacred cows and in our businesses. How do you, as a leader at any level, a mid like manager, if you if you're if you're responsible for other people being successful, for feeling successful in their day, whatever that looks like, there's orthodoxies and then there's like bad habits <laughs> that were maybe a good idea a few years ago, but now technology. I've seen something too. I was talking with um, a large survey company and it's in my executive group, and she was talking about the fact that they've been super busy and you know of course maybe haven't evolved the technology the way they want to. We all have that story we tell ourselves as leaders, like I should be farther ahead. But she said they're being left with no choice because all of their new hires are going, well, we're not going to do this spreadsheet this way. We know there's an easier way. So make that happen because I didn't come here to do spreadsheets. I came here to do this. And the demand that's being placed on organizations, even just from, and I don't want to pick it as age, but in her example, there was younger n new team members that were like, this is ridiculous. Come on. Are you kidding me? Like this is, I'm, there's an, there, there, I know for a fact, there's a better way to do this. It's being demanded of our organizations, and that can be kind of scary as a leader when that starts coming at you fast and furious, <laughs> along with market disruption and competitive and global landscape and you know dot 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 and uh, you know the recession word and all the things. But it feels like it's just a non negotiable. Like it's it, it be, it's going to quickly become a make or break whether you pay attention to it or not. You know, I think it's a it's a great call out. At, at the same time, like you you as a leader can't throw out everything that is working right. Like like they're, like uh, For sure. I hope that's not what that sounded like no, I was well, saying. But well, my team is going <laughs> to listen to this and go oh no it's like when you go to a leadership conference you come back you're like we're going to change yeah, everything right. your team looks at you like what are you doing just pick one level. thing for god's sake just pick one thing. Uh, well so so like like touche rules touché. are rules are codified decisions that do a good enough job and and a lot of time those are in place for a reason and um even if you're a young innovative team member who just joined a company sometimes you just need to stick to the rule uh but um you know i, I think there's a lot of people that rolled their eyes when you just said that right you know that right? It's, it's, it's like what you want me to follow your it's rules fair. it's here. But keep advocating. Don't you, don't you know change. who I am? I'm special. Like, so, so long as I think in your organization, there's, yeah, there's a way to advocate for change and um, and sort of push that idea forward. Uh, you know, because because I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think a lot of um, a lot of the things that did the best, for, you know, when when I was internally trying to sort of build an AI shop and launch a line of AI products, uh, a lot of the sort of inherent 
laziness and willingness to just find a better way that that existed in my team members. Hey, I don't want to do that. That takes a long time and is boring. I, I've thought of something that's much quicker. Give me two weeks to go to go automate this or improve that process. Every time I created that space for team members, it paid off. It paid off big time. I love, I love that. I love what you just said about like, let's not rebuild the whole company, but let's pick a two week. Let's try something. Let's automate this littlest. You know, I've, I talked, I was had, I was in the room with some large enterprise and they said, you know, we're really excited. We automated expense reports because now it takes a day, not three weeks for our managers and no one's nagging anybody. And that was a win at our, at, for our automation team. And I was like, so amazing. When you look at this company that operated on a very, very grand tra- you know, transportation logistics all across North America. And, but they automated expense reports and that was a hugely celebrated win because it just removed something that everybody was annoyed by. I really appreciated the construct of big, but this was important to this group. So we fixed it and that was a huge win. Let's celebrate it. I took a lot away from that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, I think, I think in some of those large organizations, um, change can be harder to motivate. It can be harder to yeah. go because you have more rules, more structures. There's more riding. On, on a disruption in one part of your business, the knock-on yeah. effects of it create create bigger and bigger risks. And so certainly there is something to, um, maybe maybe if you're that sort of young team member, there, there may be a right size of organization for that energy uh, where yep. there's, where there are fewer rules, um, where there's, it's, it's a, a little easier to, to make and really sort of drive that change forward. Well, the difference between breaking old process and just building new ways of doing things because you didn't have any of the ways in place to start with, <laughs> whether you're a startup or early stage or you know scale up, whatever it is, you're right. You're dealing with a you know a 50 year legacy organization. There's a lot of stuff that, for very good reasons, was the way it, it was. <laughs> but if you're in a different environment and you want to run forward, and there's absolutely no playbook on your desk, which is scary in a whole different way, then there's there's probably and I'm excited about Alberta because I think there's a lot more of those opportunities than there even was five years ago. Yeah, so that's exciting. Yeah, definitely. Sure. And uh, I think there. There are lots of reasons to be excited about what's going on in in Alberta at the moment. Like we we do have uh, um, you know the opportunity to offer incoming talent. Uh, you know we're 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 close to hubs like the University of Alberta. We have organizations mm-hmm. like yeah. Amy. At the same time, we have um, the ability to offer an incredible quality of life. You know, to to not be paying uh, sort of downtown Toronto wages. Uh, so from a, <laughs> so from a cost of living perspective, um, you know this this is a really attractive home for a well rounded person. And as the as the as the market opens up, you know there uh, as as working remotely becomes more and more of an opportunity. Like as yes. as our ways of work continue to change, I think we'll find more and more opportunities for innovative uh, emerging AI companies within the province of Alberta. That's exciting. Do you think from your, you mentioned brain drain uh, and I've heard we have that, that has balanced out a little bit more. I know that was a headline a bunch of years ago, got all of our, got everybody's attention because no matter what, it's going to impact you in some way. I've also heard that there was a challenge bringing new talent to Alberta even four or five years ago for more of these unique positions because they, for that individual to go, okay, well, two years out, where would I go next? It feels like there's a little, there's more lily pads than there was even a few years ago, where if I move here with my family and I want to continue to progress my career, there's other options besides just coming and working with ATB or just coming to work with Benevity or Samantha or some of the bigger ones that had some big raises. And where do I go next? I don't know. It, are you seeing something similar from a talent perspective? The talent feels a little more like, like they're not putting themselves in a box by coming to our province just to be bold. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the things that makes it easier for talent to make up their own minds on that is that, um, you know, it, the, the, the market in the space of technology and, and particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence, the, 
everyone is more clear in in terms in describing the opportunity and what the role is. And and that's really uh, important. Okay. Like I, I, like I remember that. in the yeah. early days yeah. of data science, we were we we described it as like trying to hire a unicorn. Because you needed someone who was like a researcher and they could code. Um, they were a great scientist, but they had people skills and maybe a dash of product management. Like they were really, they were really. <laughs> that sounds like skill. definitely a unicorn. That's well, a unicorn for sure. Well, well, so, so, you know, what's, what's emerged is a clearer view about the role of a data scientist within an organization mm, and how we're going to partner them up with a great product leader. And we're going to partner them up with a, a really good machine learning engineer who can build infrastructure for them or a great developer who can make an amazing front end. And suddenly you don't need to post for a unicorn anymore. Um, and, and within your organization, it becomes much easier to make it more clear to that individual what what their role is, how it's going to evolve, and what the opportunities are. And so I think that also helps to reduce a lot of the uncertainty and any sort of hesitation someone would have about taking up a job in Alberta. I really like that. The number one takeaway from this episode is get a well-written job description <laughs> with clear <laughs> accountabilities and descriptions. Because the amount of job descriptions I've read, I'm like, oh my God, what like what are you not doing? Like in this job description, especially in marketing, I think it's horrible. Like we're gonna, you're gonna be a digital marketer, you're gonna do brand, you're gonna, you know, and to to come in and know, no, you're gonna plug into a team and we need this real set of skills, but here's where it's all gonna come together. And that's maybe a luxury of a slightly larger organization. But setting people up for success, so critical. That's my public service announcement for all leaders out there who wing off a job description. Don't do that it's as important as they told you it was <laughs> put, put, put some thought into it and have it vetted maybe even get chat gpt to give it a read for you and tell you what it thinks <laughs> anyways i'll work on my plug for that um ian love the conversation really appreciate one your, your enthusiasm and your and your energy for this I, f- I feel like i'm talking to a unicorn and myself on this on this call today um what's the best way for people to get a hold of you why well, i'm gonna ask you one more question mm. I, always one more question what are you the most excited about in terms of this, you know, early spring, if we'll play with that one still, this early spring of AI and machine learning and the world that you live in, you've been in the space for your, for, you know, for, for, for enough to go, wow, yeah. What gets you the most excited about the next couple of years? You know, or even 12 months, 12 to 24. <laughs> 12 months. Uh, so, so the 12 months ahead, <laughs> what gets me the most yeah. excited is, um, is what OpenAI has done in, in changing okay. how, how people connect with and think about artificial intelligence and what it can mean to their lives. You know, we've had amazing, amazing work being done in the sort of minds of uh, DeepMind for years and ending up in sort of academic hallways where people talk about it and they go like, oh, that's kind of neat. But but for an entire society to be reacting to and thinking about what generative AI could do for, in their lives, in their workday, I, I think that that energy, that excitement for me, you know, we, we talked about the bookends like the, that, that is, that is the, the most exciting and tricky and most nuanced piece of the conversation. So I am most excited over the next 12 months about, um, uh, you know, all, all of us really sort of being confronted with, you know, the realities of what this technology could do in our, in our lives, what it could mean to us leaning into that energy. Um, the second thing I'm most excited about really has to do with, where we are advancing, um, you know, whether it's at the federal level or, or just really, I think, I think here within North America, when it comes to responsible AI. And so these conversations that really sort of started to pick up in 2019 about, um, about bias, trust, um, you know, ownership, risk, how do we control for the risks of these systems? For me, that's, 
that that you need to be having that conversation at the exact same time that you're thinking about what the opportunity is. You need to be balancing these two things in your mind. Uh, and I think there is some really fantastic work that ensures that uh, whether it's at a federal level or different regulatory bodies or different toolkits that are provided by organizations like Microsoft, Google, there are lots of um, templates, ideas, structures, systems that we can draw on to to think about AI and to think about it safely, to quantify the bias in our data, to quantify the bias that shows up in, in a model that you then train on that data, and then to understand and manage, okay, well, what is the harm that that could result in? And how do I control that? So that so that for both builders and consumers of artificial intelligence, we can do it safely. Like no one wants, no one wants anyone to get hurt. No one wants exclusionary practices, uh, but these things can emerge as a result of dysfunctional systems. And so we have a set of tools and hopefully soon a set of conversations and regulations that can help us to unpack, quantify and control those risks as well. So like those, those two energies, I think are going to make for a, a pretty exciting 12 months. Is that, I said, I said last question, but I lied uh, to be clear. Um, <laughs> as I always do. Is that what could set us back? Uh, some type of ethical, like something at a breach level, like like, um, like a recall when Volkswagen maybe overstated it's a fuel efficiency. You know, some of those big, those is, is there a recall moment with AI? Because obviously computer computing power is there, drive, companies are embracing it. Is there a big F up that makes the public go, whoa, we got ahead of our, this is like, we're going to pull back from this. This just got super risky. Because that always tends to happen with any type of a boom cycle something something kicks us or kicks it kicks the chair out from under you is that where that risk lies feels feels like it listened to you talk big time uh yes yes yeah. and 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 i think that's why you need to be having the risk conversation at the same time you're having the opportunity conversation you can't design one without the other you can't build an ai system that you think is going to make your your company a ton of money um but in a very unethical way and then later on test it and then find that out. That's going to cause a hard stop, right? So, so like what you need to be doing is is sort of um, weighing that value that you can receive through the application of this new thing with with the cost. And the cost may be to job displacement. They may be to um, uh, you know a biased decision, negative outcomes. Like there could be real material harms. So you need to be, I think, as a as a developer of these systems, sort of quantifying that. And we need to. Um, you know, really what takes the, what takes the edge off is education, right? Like, like if, if we have those two conversations simultaneously, uh, very much like, um, I don't know if you, if, if you're sort of familiar with DevOps, right. You'd have these developers who would write a bunch of code and then like the people who have to ensure that the code runs, they'd find a lot of bugs in it and push it back to the devs. And that's like, that's, you, you need to have those teams together, you know, the, the, those who are building and leaning into the value and the opportunity at the same time need to be best friends with those individuals who are quantifying, characterizing the risk, understanding how we realize that value, but how we do it safely and how we can do it in, in ultimately a, a sustainable way. Hmm, appreciate that. Ian, an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Love your energy, your passion, and obviously your experience and uh, your 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 bought, your bought in level into, into this space. If somebody's dying to chat with you more and connect and just anything, what's the best way? Do you have a preferred? Again, we can all get a hold of each other. But what's the what's your? Do you have a preferred channel? Yeah, preferred channel would be through LinkedIn. I am slow to respond, but please do reach out through LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I appreciate you, you you put an asterisk on that, but yeah, I, I find most guests now are like, LinkedIn is becoming like, no, don't email me because it'll get lost, but LinkedIn, I will eventually see you on there. 
Um, fantastic. I love the work that you guys are doing. I love your passion. Thanks for coming on the show. That was a really, really good conversation. I, I enjoyed it to, to no end. Thank you. I so enjoyed much. it thoroughly, Tyler.